Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. The past few years have only served to highlight what allowing Westminster to make choices for us is like. So let's make the choices we want for our families and our communities right here in Scotland. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP. Now let's find out who's joining me on Scotland's Choice today. Mark McGagan. I'm a polling expert and doctoral researcher at the University of Glasgow, and I specialise in studying independence movements um, both here in Scotland, uh, but also around the world. Well, Mark, thanks for uh, joining us on Scotland's Choice. I know our listeners will be really interested in what you've uh, got to say. You mentioned in the, your introduction there that you're a polling expert. Of course, you've got plenty of experience in that uh, particular field. To kick things off, I wonder if you could explain a little bit about why you think that good and accurate polling is important in politics. Well, I'm glad you said good and accurate polling <laughs> and not just polling. Um, we'll come back to that. You know, we might, we might, <laughs> we might come back to, yeah, we might, might, might discuss how polls are uh, poll results are presented to the public. Um, but it's really important that polling, which is intended for publication, is well designed, that you try to avoid bias to the greatest degree possible. Um, and, and this might sound a bit bizarre, um, but some folks seem to forget this, that you are actually measuring what you want to measure before you start putting out data saying that it tells us one thing when it doesn't really tell us that. And I think a great example of this is um, issue polling in Scotland. We are regularly told, for example, the constitution isn't an important issue for Scots. Um, the, the, the reason for that is because lots of pollsters will just give people a list of issues and ask them to um, tell them the top three most important out of that list. And there was a particular poll, a great example, during the pandemic, which had two separate COVID-19 options, one to do with dealing with the pandemic, one to do with uh, dealing with the economic recovery, a separate economy issue, a separate healthcare issue, and that's before you get to education mm. and then the constitution and so on. And the way that's designed pushes people towards picking what they think everybody else thinks the most important issues should, right? Um, but what happens when we ask people just off the top of their head, what is the most important issue to you or what's the most important issue determining how you're going to vote in an election? When we do that, we see that the constitution comes a lot higher in the pecking order. And that's because what we're doing is just getting people's top of mind, um, top, top of mind, top issues, things that they care about the most, probably things that they talk about um, the most. So, so good and accurate is crucial measuring what you actually want to to measure is crucial and if we get the design right and if it is accurate and it's good quality polling what it helps us to do is understand where the public are on different issues and also helps policymakers and mps like yourself decide well how important is this issue really what's affecting people's lives what do people care about um the most and, and the policymaking community in general can, can use that data to, to inform inform decision making um and you can use it obviously in conjunction with the other pieces of data that, that you have as an MP, also you have a mailbag, your constituents are writing into you all the time about what's affecting their life. And so if you're seeing that in the polls, concern about inflation is really high, and you're also getting lots of letters and emails about inflation and the cost of living as a really clear indicator, that this is the most important issue affecting people. Um, so it's just, it's data that can help us to make decisions, but obviously it needs to be 
accurate mm, of course. well designed and all the rest of it and the, the example you've get, given just now is absolutely true you know i can see a flood of emails coming in with various different issues to show you know to my constituents how important that particular event or that issue is in, in any uh, given day and you can really see the difference in terms of, of that and sometimes it uh, matches the polls directly and uh, and you know it's a hot issue other times then you know, it's something that's maybe going under the radar of the pollsters. Your experience within the polling industry is to do with analysing the results and, and the trends of the results and seeing what is moving the needle and why it's moving the needle. So could you tell us a wee bit about that process, just to, to fill us in on that? So there's a, a number of different ways that we can look at polling data. Um, in the first instance, most polling companies, certainly all polling companies that are members of the British Polling Council are required to release data tables, right? They're required to publicly release the data they've collected and information about the methodology so that the rest of us can look at it and decide, as we were just talking about a moment ago, is this good quality? Has it been well, has it been well designed? What's it really telling us? And when we look at those tables, we can look at different social classes. We can look at different age groups. We can look at, you know, in political polling you know, how, how people who voted no in 2014 are going to vote in an election versus how people who voted yes are going to vote in an election. Mm. And that kind of basic level of, of analysis can actually be really productive. It can be really fruitful. So we can see from that kind of very basic look at data tables that people who are younger are more likely to vote SNP um, and people who are younger are also more likely to support independence. The yes voters are more likely to vote SNP. And the SNP voters are more likely to be favourable to Nicola Sturgeon. So we can see just from that, there is a, there's a set of relationships here, a web of relationships. All of these things are related to each other. But we need to be careful, obviously, in how we interpret that. Mm. You know, what does that actually mean? Is it that people who vote SNP are therefore favourable towards Nicola Sturgeon, for example? Or is it people who are favourable towards Nicola Sturgeon are more likely to vote SNP? Or does that relationship go both ways? and it's mutually reinforcing, or does it work some other way? Um, so we need to be quite quite careful around that. And in some cases, it's clear what the direction of a relationship is. We don't expect people's preferences around independence to change their age, right? So we know that if you're younger and you support independence, it's because you're younger, it's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. um, but in other cases, it, it's, it's more complex. Um, and that's particularly the case when we're asking what what drives voting intention. And, and you said just now, you know, when it's clear that the, the way polling results are reported can often vary a lot and multiple publications can run sometimes what seems like really contradictory stories based on the same set of results. Uh, do you think there's a, a danger that the public might become disengaged with polls because, it, you know, as a result of the way that they're, they're being presented to them? Well, I think this feeds into the broader concern um, around misinformation and disinformation um, and the fact that you can take, you know, data doesn't have any meaning outside of context, right? The context that you put a piece of data in is going to determine how people interpret it. Um, and yes, you can use a piece of data to present a particular view of the world that might not necessarily be accurate. And I think a great example of that is the way that different newspapers different publications will report the exact same question to do with whether people want another independence referendum. You can ask the same question about whether people want a referendum in the next year, two years, five years, and different publications will pick and choose different pieces from that data. And you'll get one headline that says, well, Scots want another independence referendum. And another piece that says, 
they don't because they're using different different data points. The the the, the solution I think for us as pollsters is twofold. Firstly, we need to actually ask simple, straightforward questions that are difficult to misinterpret and difficult to misrepresent, right? If you want to measure whether or not people want to have another referendum, just ask yes or no, do you think there should be another independence referendum? It's pretty difficult to misrepresent that. Um, but if you're doing more complex work, and a lot of the work that researchers do is much more complex than that, I think we need to be a lot clearer and a lot more public in what our interpretation of the data is and not be afraid to contest these interpretations. If we see a piece of data, a piece of research being used to present a particular worldview or a particular spin on, 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 on what's going on in public opinion, I think we need to be you know, unafraid to, to kind of call publications out and be clear about, you know, what we actually think the data is, is, is telling us in the broad context of everything that we know about public opinion, everything we know about, about politics at that point in time, um, rather than just you know, journalists can write whatever they want, but I don't think that, that we as researchers should just sit back and allow uh, the media to, to spin data whichever way they want to. Well, there's certainly no spin about the fact that you will know, as I have noticed as well, that in the past polls can get it spectacularly wrong. Um, you know, and most, most of the time they, they seem relatively accurate in terms of how they're reporting uh, predicted results, but we, sometimes way off the mark. How can uh, that risk be mitigated and how can our listeners learn uh, which polls to trust and which ones that we should take with a pinch of salt? I think you were talking earlier about the ones that don't uh, publish their data sets uh, and so forth. Is that a, a kind of good measure uh, of uh, how to trust a pollster? Well, a lot of it is about transparency, I think. Any pollster, so all the major pollsters that you'll see in, uh, you know, on social media or, or in the press, on, te on, te on TV, um, all of those major polling companies and all of those major researchers are either affiliated to the British Polling Council, in which case there's a set of regulations and standards they need to meet, or they're affiliated with one of our universities or a similar academic institution. And again, there are standards they need to meet, and a lot of those standards are around transparency. So I think, firstly, if you've never heard of a poster before, you've never seen any of their data before, they're not a member of the British Polling Council, I would take anything they have to say with a, a tablespoon of salt, you know, not just a pinch. I would really take, treat it very sceptically. Does that count too for, you know, when a particular th type of think tank might commission a, a poll? Do they have a say in the questions and things like that? Or? Um, yes. I mean, I, I think we need to distinguish between posters that are unreliable and questions which are just different mm -hmm. from the questions that we might be used to seeing asked. And I think you're, you're probably referring to Scotland and Union or but these islands who regularly That would be one of them, yeah, but there are probably others, yeah. One thing I was going to come on to is that when a reputable poster, a poster that publishes their data, publishes their methodology, does so, everyone else in, in the polling world, all, you know, social science researchers and posters were incentivized to interrogate each other's work critically. Um, last year, shortly before the Holyrood election, there was a poll, an independence poll that came out from a, a pollster that is a member of the British Polling Council. It was quite explosive. The, the numbers were very different from, from what we'd seen recently uh, at that point. And when they published their data tables, it turned out that they hadn't been filtering out people who were unlikely to vote. Mm -hmm. And that was picked up on by people like Sir John Curtis. It was talked about publicly. The error was pointed out. There was a conversation around why this data is not accurate and why it might not be accurate. And similarly, 
with that kind of that particular question, that remain leave question around independence that you sometimes see, which is produces very different data from the, the standard yes, no question. Again, there's always, whenever that comes out, pretty much every time that comes out, there's a conversation among posters and researchers about why that's different from the yes, no question, mm-hmm. why it might not be more reliable. You know, why, why, I mean, in my view, personally, it's far less reliable than the yes, no question is. Um, so there will always be pushback that you can look at um, an online conversation and conversation indeed in, in the press and, and published in newspapers whenever that kind of thing happens. I think we're very lucky actually to have pollsters in Scotland who are relatively very accurate. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in the cases where um, there is error, it's pretty consistent. You know, it's not entirely clear why the SNP poll worse in the regional list than they usually perform in the actual election. Mm-hmm. Likewise, it's not entirely clear why the Greens poll a bit better than they usually perform in the actual election, but the error isn't massive. Is this the I, kind of margin of error 3%? Yeah, so the, the, the kind of, the, yeah. usually you're within the margin of error. If you're not, it's usually quite a big outlier poll and the others will be, we have typically very accurate. I mean, I think the most important thing though is to never look at just one single poll in isolation or one question or data point in isolation. Look at all, all the polls. This is a lot easier when you have tons of polls like <laughs> we have right before an election. You know, yeah. There aren't many polls, it's difficult to do, but you need to look at all the different sources of data that we have and reach conclusions based on on everything um, that we're seeing and not just take, you know, one thing I would never do is just take one piece of data or one poll as, as gospel. Yeah, I want to ask you, you always need to critically interrogate them. Yeah, I want to ask you about the types of questions in a minute, but just so, since you're talking about lots of polls and so forth, you know, we often see sometimes there's a poll of polls or there's a, you know, a poll tracker. How, how useful and important are those, do you think? I think they're important. I think they're useful. Um, one thing that we need to keep in mind is that a lot of them are not public about how they average out data and um, the methodology isn't necessarily um, publicized. You will find that a poll average right before an election will be more accurate than as this poll here or that poll there. Yeah. Uh, because in principle, the error from the different polls going in different directions should even out. But at the same time, you get instances like 2015 where all the polls are skewed in one direction and even even a, a poll tracker, a poll average is not going to help you with that. So they're, they're, they're useful. It's not a silver bullet to the issue of polling error in any way, shape or form. Um, and I think on top of that, you also get things like seat calculators mm-hmm. and there are people who do seat modeling and, and all of these kind of more complex and sophisticated um, types of analysis. And often they can be very useful, but again, often they can be very inaccurate too. And that's ultimately down to how did that person build the model? What's their methodology? What data did they use? You know, how did they weight different sources of, of, of data? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that, that's that I think they're useful, you know, they provide more information. Um, but I think that really you do want to take into account the breadth of what you're seeing across the polls. I would never just take a poll tracker and say, well, that's the average. So that's the most accurate thing. You know, I would still look at the data you're getting from, from different polling agencies. Of course, one of the difficulties is that you're dealing with people and people often have um, strong views. People are complex and so are their opinions. And as I mentioned earlier, some think tanks and organizations might seek to commission polls with uh, questions that can shape data in a particular way. And it, it made me think the other day, I'm a lot older than you, I was thinking about that Yes Minister th- clip, I don't know if you've seen it, when they're uh, talking about the re- you know the possible reintroduction of 
national service. And then it beautifully lays, lays out how you can go from a set of leading questions into an answer that you want, you know, so you're worried about uh, uh, young people being out in the streets with no jobs and are you, uh, you know, concerned about, you know, um, this, that and the next, would you vote for national service? And the answer is inevitably yes in that sketch. And then they flip it over and go, um, you know, for example, would you like to see young people uh, you know, trained to kill and uh, being uh, trained in how to use lethal weapons and uh, so forth. And of course, the answer is, would you, you know, the final question is, would you oppose national service? And it comes out as yes as well. So that that is uh, a, an issue, isn't it? When you get a series of leading questions, how often does that happen? And do the data sets always capture that? Do they always kind of make sure that kind of thing's filtered out? Well, I think if, what, you, I mean, what you're referring to is something called the ordering effect. Mm -hmm. um, very straightforwardly because the effect comes from how you order questions and how those questions influence how people feel and what they're thinking and what's top of mind. And what you usually want to do is get as much data as possible, just completely cold without people having been asked questions about their attitudes. Um, and big, big surveys like the Savannah Comrades um, Scotland political tracker that they do for the Scotsman, they will ask all the voting intention questions at the start. And then they'll move on to questions about, are you favorable towards this politician, that politician, you know, and so on. You'll try to ask all of the, perhaps the most important questions, which could be heavily influenced by, um, by questions about specific issues. For example, you try and ask them first when people haven't been influenced by the other questions you're going to ask, but there is always going to be some element of that. There's no way to kind of filter that out. And there's actually, you know, there's not really any way to measure what those effects will be without spending an enormous amount of money running the same poll 50 different ways with, you know, umpty different question orderings. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 generally the way that you want to try and approach the interpretation of data, um, like that is to look at it over time, right? If you're concerned that, um, you know, you can, because what I can do is, is rather than telling you at a particular point in time right after three questions about are you worried about the economy after independence or are you worried about this after independence then asking whether you'd vote for it um you can look at how the actual yes voting intention for example changes over time in response to events and that that can give you a, a kind of better picture of what's going on in terms of changes of public opinion but generally speaking the only way to try and address that is to ask the most important questions first so that you're not you know you're not influencing um the results in that way but it's, it's you know it's something you could do if you wanted to do it you, you definitely can do it and, and it, that's unavoidable so how important then do you think would be the principle of verification and polling and what would you say is the level of trust that people can have that they're they're not being manipulated at the end of the day i mean i think people can be can, can trust major pollsters not to manipulate their opinions because it's not in their interest to do so mm -hmm. right like fundamentally they're incentivized to be accurate if you're producing data that then turns out to be clearly not accurate, you're not going to have people commissioning work from you. Polling companies make the overwhelming majority of their money from private sector research. It's got nothing to do with political polling, right? Political polling is largely a marketing exercise for most research agencies. And, and as a result, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's an exercise in demonstrating how accurately we can measure public opinion. So there's an incentive there for you to be, for you to be accurate. And likewise with university researchers, what they're interested in is the reality, not pushing people towards one, one view or another. Again, what it says that you need to be critical of all polling, looking at what questions that they ask, who was funding it, 
who conducted it, were they transparent, you know, what was the methodology? And a lot of the time, again, like we were saying earlier, a lot of the time when you get a poll that's released, which does look like there may have been an influence from the question wording, which does happen, or it does look like there may have been an influence from question ordering, which also happens, then that will be picked up on, you know, there's a, there's a broad incentive for us to be critical of each other's work. Um, not because we want to do each other down, but because mm. again, it's another way of demonstrating expertise and also protecting and safeguarding the reputation of the industry as a whole. Um, and, and from a, a university point of view, the, the reputation of the universities and academia and higher education and, and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, so there, there are strong incentives for us to get it right, but sometimes, you know, sometimes, sometimes these, these effects can't be avoided mistakes happen or, a, or a que maybe a, a question is asked that perhaps the person funding it has had a bit too much input into that question, at, at which point there's a conversation to be had. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself um, looking at a set, you know, a poll and whatever and going, no, that can't be right or laughing out loud at something that you've, uh, you've seen it. Has that been an experience you've ever had? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily laughing out loud, more heads and hands kind of, that kind of response. I mean, I think generally speaking. If you see a poll result and it looks too good to be true or too bad to be true, it usually is. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually not accurate. Um, sometimes it is, you know, but we get, and, and I mean, that this even applies to outliers, right? Like mm -hmm. you, there's just, there, because of the laws of statistics, you're always going to get an outlier poll once every now and then that has data that's just very different from all the other polling and is very different from the actual state of affairs among the general public. Mm -hmm. Just because of, of natural sampling error, there's no way to avoid that. Um, so it's not even you're not even necessarily going to get wild results just because someone's messed up question ordering or because somebody has worded something a particular way. It can also be by accident, mm -hmm. and, and 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 not not as as in you made a mistake. You you might not have done anything anything wrong or any anything any different from anybody else, um, and the data will still look good. And, and as you point, and again, this is. Yeah. But this is why you look at all of the polling yeah. in, in total before you reach conclusions and I, as you, at state affairs. As you've pointed out, you know, sometimes the public can outwit the pollsters, as in, you said in 2015, I want to experience myself there as well. So it, let, let's turn specifically to Scottish independence. What are the main issues that have driven uh, opinions to change from one side to the other since 2014, in your view? I think it's difficult to tell what the main issues are, if we want to talk about the economy or healthcare or, you know, specific, what we might call vertical issues, which can sit within their own, their own world, they interact obviously, but they're largely sit within their own world. But one thing that we have seen, um, through the Scottish election study, um, the 2021 version of which has been published throughout this week is that between 2016 pre-referendum, pre-new referendum and 2021, there's been a massive realignment of Scottish voters in terms of they're, they're no voting and, and, you know, they're no or yes voting and their remain leave voting preferences. Pre-referendum, the biggest block were no remainers, uh, followed by yes remainers and then the other two, the, the two leave groups were a bit smaller. But since then, the yes remainer group is now the largest and the no remainer group has kind of split. There's a chunk that have gone yes remain, a chunk that have gone no leave. And it's led us to a position where no leave and yes remain are the two biggest blocks in Scottish politics of the two biggest, you know, political tribes, so to speak. And that's a massive change compared to 2016. 
And kind of what that speaks to is that voters have felt compelled on the two biggest, you know, two ha- most, you know, the high salience uh, political issues of the past decade to align themselves in particular ways so that their preferences are consistent with one another, right? Either you're out with the UK and the EU or you're out with the EU and in the UK. And that was just not the case in 2014. Also, we all remember the oft retweeted now um, by, not, not I assume not by the people that better together and tend to retweet it. <laughs> But they oft retweeted um, a thing about, you know, voting no was the best way to protect Scotland's place in the European mm-hmm. Union. Um, views on that have shifted enormously since the, the EU referendum. Um, I think in terms of how to think about this really, in terms of like a framework to think about how these issues intersect, I don't think it's necessarily just about the economy or healthcare or which of these are the big issues or, pen- or to be more specific, say pensions, right? It's not necessarily just about that. It's about salience on the one hand, so how high profile is an issue, how top of mind is an issue, and then it's about affect. You know, how does it make that person feel about the prospect of independence? How does it make them feel about the union? Yeah. Um, and all of that's really, all the interactions are really quite complex. And, you know, obviously the most salient issue at one point in time will change, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, so it's, it can be difficult to, to tell what the big issue is going to be or what the big driver has been because it's a long period of time lots of issues have been important but i think when you look at that realignment i think it makes it really really clear that the issue of europe and everything that happened around the referendum and the the kind of element of identities come into this as well scots are more likely to identify as european than people in the rest of the uk so all of these all of these different issues and different aspects of politics interact in a really complicated way but the, out, the outcome that we've seen is this really big realignment yeah. into these two two big camps in Scottish politics. So does that make it difficult to look at the data and predict something that has the potential in the future to cause a big swing to uh, either side of the yeah. argument? Yeah. It, it really does. I mean I think we can look at examples right we just had a really big example COVID-19 led a huge shift towards yes we had polls suggesting that as much as 58% if Scots would vote yes back in October 2020. So we know that there are issues that can do that. And if we look at the polling data from around then, we can see what else was moving. So we saw that Nicola Sturgeon's approval rating was very high. Boris Johnson's was crashing. Views of the UK government were really poor at that point in time. They've since recovered a little bit. So you might think, well, the next issue that could actually cause that kind of swing might be one which it doesn't necessarily affect Scotland all that much, but maybe one which discredits the UK government more. And we'll need to see, say with the cost of living right now, how that plays out over the next, well, I mean, months and, and potentially more than a year to see whether that might be the issue. But it's pretty much, you know, I wouldn't have predicted COVID-19 in advance. I don't know who it would have. So it's, it's difficult to tell what the next big issue is ever going to be. I'm sure there's a couple of books out there by people who said they predicted it, but I don't think many of us would have done. As you touched on earlier, you're carrying out PhD research at the University of Glasgow on self-determination movements around the world. Do you see any interesting parallels between uh, the, the independence movement here in Scotland and other such movements internationally? Is there anything that we can uh, we can learn or see from these movements, either from their failures or their successes? Uh, yes. I mean, and everything... As ever, these kinds of comparisons need to be caveated because each case is, mm-hmm. is, is slightly different and, yeah. and they're all slightly unique. But, you know, we can look at 
all the different, say, independence movements in liberal democratic countries that have similar or um, also kind of all slightly unique but similar electoral systems through which an independence movement can seek the levers of power in order to, to achieve independence. Um, movements, you know, operating in those sorts of systems. Unfortunately, there's not a lot to say about learning from successes because there haven't really been successes in that regard. Self-determination movements, independence movements typically fail unless there is some very large scale process occurring in the international system, like the collapse of an empire or decolonization. That's usually where independence movements are successful. And I'm not sure there's a lot for the Scottish independence movement to learn there, but I do think there are lots of cautionary tales. Um, that you can point to, and well, one in particular would be Quebec, in the sense that Quebec had two independence referenda. It came very, they came very, very close to winning the second referendum in 1995. They then went on to win another election uh, in Quebec. But in 2003, the Parti Québécois vote share collapsed. They did get back into power very, very briefly, um, but since then they've been supplanted by um, a party, the the Coalition Avenir Quebec, which is a, a, an anti-independence party, but is made up of former Parti Québécois politicians. Mm. And the reason that happened, and this is, I guess, the, the, the cautionary tale, really, is the reason that happened is that eventually people stopped believing that independence was ever going to happen, right? You do eventually reach a point, I think this is true of most, if not all, independence movements, you reach a point where people tire of the issue. Right. There's, there's a, there is a bit of a time limit on how long you can continue to advocate for independence without achieving it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that what happened in Quebec is the, the fate of Scotland or the SNP or the independence movement. But I think as a comparison point, it's probably the closest that we have. And I think the lesson from that would be that you need to strike while the iron's hot. I think the, the independence movement in Scotland is very strong at the moment. Um, the SNP is in a position of, of power and, and significant advantage. There's lots and lots of very difficult obstacles to overcome between where the independence movement is now and potentially independence at some point in the future. But when you're in this sort of position of strength, yeah. the, the lesson I think from Quebec is you take advantage of it to the greatest possible degree um, because it's not going to last and, forever. And get, nothing ever does. And get that movement to pull together, obviously. That's uh, one of the, the key things. Mark, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you about the uh, polling and about the, the different uh, issues around it. Uh, do you, where, where do you see the polling industry going in, in the future? Do you think it's going to become more important? We're going to have more polls on uh, lots of different things, or do you think it's uh, uh, you know going to continue much along the same lines as it is just now? Is it getting cheaper and easier to produce polling? Where, where's the future for it? Um, I think it's becoming cheaper and easier to produce polling in Scotland anyway. Um, but I think generally speaking, it's becoming more difficult. Response rates are low. It's becoming a real challenge to, um, to get accurate data. Um, and there are lots of ways to, to approach that challenge, but I think really where we're going to end up in future in a Scottish context is probably we'll have more polling, um, in future. I think we should, we should welcome that, um, obviously. As we discussed, you need to be very careful in how you interpret polls, um, but more data is, is, is always a good thing, I think. Um, but one one area in which I think we need to we need to start making strides forward in Scotland is is having our own within the country um, homegrown modelling political trackers. There are obviously some really good um, 
some, some really good, uh, academic, um, studies like the Scottish election study and their quarterly, um, trackers, which are all, that's all, you know, that, that data all eventually becomes, um, public domain, the entire data set is publicly available for people to use. Um, and of course you have other resources like ballot box Scotland as, as a, as a polling aggregator. I think more of that kind of thing, more poll aggregation, better modeling, um, all those are all areas where we could make strides forward in Scotland, um, in terms of our political polling. And with any luck, I think that we will have the data to be able to do that um, over the next few years. Margaret Geegan, thanks very much indeed for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thanks very much, Drew. Thanks for listening to Scotland's Choice. You can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot and you can watch the full-length videos on YouTube. If you can share this podcast and our videos, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.